Well, good morning, everyone. We are in the final week of our series called Raw Prayers, and uh, I have found myself on the edge of tears more than usual this month. I don't know if it's that my little girl's getting ready to get, to graduate and go to college, or maybe I'm just turning into a sentimental old fart. Those things are both true, by the way, but I'm also learning, I think, I hope, to process my emotions through prayer by turning to the Psalms as we've been studying this month. And I hope it's been helpful to you, too. Uh, old fart or not, by the way. So today you can turn with me to Psalm 73, and we're going to look at a psalm written by an ancient priest named Asaph. He was a, a worship leader, a musician in Israel's temple, and he's processing a crisis of faith. It's an intellectual crisis, yes, but it's also an emotional crisis, and he's praying through some extreme doubt. And again, we see the Psalms giving language to these universal human experiences. We've looked at fear and pain and guilt, and today we're gonna pray through doubt. Now, Psalm 73 is one of the, the most famous Psalms of lament. Uh, but it's also a case study in how open God is to allowing his children to process their emotions with him. It's actually kind of crazy that the Bible contains resources for people who are doubting even when sometimes the source of those doubts is the Bible itself. I just love the realness and the transparency of it all. And this psalm begins with a statement of faith by Asaph. He says, truly God is good. Uh, and then he carries on for a whole chapter about how he's not sure he can buy that. He has doubts. And so this psalm is relevant because I think we've all experienced seasons of doubt. And I just want to declare up front that if you have doubts, you're in good company. Uh, doubting Abraham laughed in disbelief when God told him that his 90-year-old wife, Sarah, was going to give birth. Uh, doubting Moses told God several times that he had the wrong guy when God told him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Doubting Peter asked Jesus to let him walk across the, the Sea of Galilee, but he got a nose full of seawater when he started to doubt. Now, that's some good company. Billy Graham was 90 years old when he was asked if he believed in God or that God would say, well done, good and faithful servant, when he got to heaven. And he paused and said after a very long, surprising inner struggle, I sure hope so. Uh, Mother Teresa, in her personal diaries that were found after she died, wrestled with doubts all throughout her ministry in Calcutta. And so it's okay to have some doubts. In fact, they often lead to growth. But the thing is, about growth is that it's painful and it almost always requires some kind of resistance. What are you doing when you lift weights? Well, you're providing your muscles with resistance. Why are you doing that? So your muscles will grow. Growth comes with pain. We even have a phrase for it, growing pains. Anybody remember these when you were a kid? Like you'd wake up at night with this incredible pain in your legs. The ligaments aren't keeping up with the growth of your bones or whatever. I don't know what's happening in there, but it, it's not always pleasant to grow. Sometimes it's painful, and, and part of that pain is often seasons of doubt. And so I'm not going to tell you today just to forget about your doubts or to have more faith. I'm not going to tell you to check your brain in uh, you know, or check your experiences in at the door and let's hold hands and sing kumbaya and stick our heads in the sand and be better Christians. I think Psalm 73 provides us with an amazing and authentic tool to help walk through our doubts in the presence of God. And I truly believe that doubt is a necessary aspect of faith. In fact, here, here's today's big idea. Bringing your doubts to God can propel you toward faith. And I'm going to give a shout out to both Tim Keller and Tim Mackey, who have done some amazing writing on Psalm 73, and I'm borrowing liberally from some of their studies today. So in Psalm 73, Asaph is wrestling with injustice. This is the source of his doubt. He, he sees that the wicked are thriving, while many apparently good and innocent people are suffering. 
And Asaph joins a chorus with Job and Jeremiah and other prophets in asking anguished questions about why God seems to allow evil and injustice and unfair suffering in the world. And guys, the Bible is fiercely realistic about these things. It does not give us a cleaned up version of life. And so Asaph starts all rosy, but it, but it, but it quickly turns. So, so look at one verse 1 of Psalm 73. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so he, he begins with this standard statement of faith. Truly God is good to Israel. And, and I've often wondered, after reading the rest of this psalm, if he's being a little sarcastic. But that just may be my personality. But th- this statement represents a core confession of the storyline of the Bible. Truly God is good. By the way, that phrase is not synonymous with God is nice. Goodness is always connected to action. And so Asaph is acknowledging and celebrating God's redemptive activity among his people, their rescue from slavery, his protection and provision at every stage of history. God is good. And and even today, every good believer is supposed to say that, you know, what, what, what do we say on Easter? God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Not so fast. Verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And so he he gave kind of his standard line with a smile painted on his face at the beginning. He says, I'm supposed to say God is good, but I don't know if I buy it anymore. And and now he introduces in verse 2 this great metaphor for doubt. He says, my feet stumbled. I slipped. Another version says, I lost my foothold. And we get this picture of a person Climbing a rock face. I don't know if you've ever seen these, these recent documentaries of climbers like Free Solo or any of these. These guys are insane. But picture standing at the base of a rock wall and starting to ascend. This is how Asaph is describing his spiritual journey, his walk with God. It's more, it's more like a climb. It's hard. And standing at the base of the rock, like you have a plan, you have a route, and you start climbing, and you have an idea what your next move will be, and then something unexpected happens, and you almost fall, you slip, you lose your foothold. This is such a great picture of doubt, because we start out and we have a worldview, we have a plan, we want God to have a role in our lives, and we have a view of how the world is going to work, and then something happens that blows to pieces all the categories that we created. It disorients you, and you find yourself hanging off the rock wall. We don't know exactly what happened to Asaph, but I want you to look how he describes it, starting in verse 3. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, this people turn back to them and, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And now he compares that. He looks at to himself. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And so what is it that has caused Asaph to to hang off the rock wall? What is it that's causing his doubt? Well, he sees the prosperity of the wicked. 
The Hebrew word used for prosperity here is a word that we've talked about before. It's shalom. It means abundance and wholeness. It's God's promise of the good life for his people. And so Asaph is looking around and he sees these people who are self-important. They're, they treat others like garbage. They're greedy. They're lazy. They do whatever they want without, without consequence. And they're not just getting away with this. They're actually prospering. It feels like God is rewarding them with shalom. And then in verses 13 and 14, Asaph compares that with his life, and he has a little pity party. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean, and I washed my hands in innocence. He says, I've been on the straight and narrow, bro, and I'm not sure that it's worth it. They're, they're getting shalom out there, and I'm getting affliction and plague and abuse, stricken and rebuked, he says. The evil people who don't even do their devotions, they're the ones who are prospering. And so I'm not even sure if it's worth it anymore. Like if I want shalom, maybe I should walk away from God like them, just be like the pagans. These are not even neutral parties. They're, they're actually mocking God. So we go through our society and we watch, you know, these musicians at the Grammys or whatever, the last Super Bowl, just acting demonic, downright demonic. Or we see, you know, social media influencers that are just crass and immoral and downright evil at times. And they're the ones that seem to be making all the money and having all the success and having all the fun. And Asaph says, and I'm over here plugging away, just trying to be faithful. And yet I feel like I've been punished every morning. What gives God? He's having doubt. Now, I want you to notice something important. When we say doubt, we often think that it's something that happens in our head. It's an intellectual issue. But this is not an academic exercise for Asaph. It's not intellectual. It's an experiential issue. It's emotional. His doubt didn't come from a new idea introduced by a skeptic or a college professor. His doubt originated with a new experience that he didn't have a category for. His experience didn't square with his worldview. We often think that our doubts come from ideas, but the ideas often started during experiences or relationships that went sideways. Doubt happens when your heart can't process what your eyes are seeing. You believe that God is good, but your experience tells you that no good God could allow what you're experiencing to happen. So you believe that God is good, but then your wife gets cancer. You believe that God is good and is your protector and defender, and then you're unjustly accused of something and lose your job. You believe that God answers prayers, and then you pray earnestly for healing, and it never comes. And so Asaph is having an experience that's causing his heart to question what his mind believes. He's still saying the right things. God is good, but his heart isn't in it anymore. Anybody ever been there? Yeah, me too. And there are some church circles where this level of questioning isn't welcome. They'll say things like, well, just believe harder. You know, maybe just you need to confess your sin. You must, you have to be right with the Lord because if you were right with the Lord, everything would be good with you. Or maybe you're sub-spiritual because you're going through these things. That's just wrong. So how does Asaph move toward his doubts? Imagine him, or maybe you, <laughs> dangling from the rocks. Your foot has slipped along the climb. How do you reestablish that sturdy grip? What do you do with your doubts? Well, you bring them to God. But how? Well, that's how I want to frame the rest of my message today. We'll allow this psalm to instruct us as we work through our emotions. And so let's go to school on Psalm 73 as we consider how to bring your doubts to God. Here's the first step, and it's somewhat counterintuitive, but it's to deconstruct your doubts. 
I wanna take you back to verse three. This is incredibly important because we see Asaph honestly probing the, the motives for his doubts. I mean, we heard all his descriptions of those evil, wicked people who are prospering while the innocent slave away like him. But is his doubt really just about injustice? Is it really just about the oppression of the little guy? Is it really that pure for him? How could God allow all these little innocent people to suffer and at the same time reward the rich and powerful? Well, when you look at verse three, it's amazing how honest he gets. He, he diagnoses some pretty raw stuff. Look what he says. He says, I was envious of the arrogant. So, so what's the core issue? What, what's his main problem? Is it godly and righteous indignation? No, he's jealous. It's his jealousy that's motivating his doubt. Jealousy is something that emerges when I feel like I'm not getting what I deserve. And, and usually there's an external target out there. I start looking around at who has what I want. And so Asaph is overcome with envy. I want what they have. I want the trouble-free life. I want prosperity. I want comfort and power. And it causes him to exaggerate what they have and to minimize what he has. And as soon as you can establish that God is not enough, like if he's not all you need, if you can't trust him to give you what you need, then you're eyes will start to look around and find peace and security somewhere else, in your reputation, in your bank account, in your marriage, in your list of good deeds. Envy is dangerous. Proverbs 14.30 says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And so Asaph diagnoses that this isn't an intellectual or even a super spiritual crisis of doubt. The origins of his doubts aren't really about God's justice or God's goodness. They're about Asaph's own jealousy. He's deconstructing his doubt. He's being skeptical about his skepticism. And upon reflection, he says, I've been keeping my nose clean. I've been doing the whole God thing. And I'm ticked off that I'm not getting some sort of payoff like all these wicked people seem to be getting. You see, when you have doubts, it's so important to deconstruct them, to take a searching inventory of your heart and your motivations. And, and when you're yelling the loudest, saying, God, why are you like this? Why did you do that? I'm done with the whole Christianity thing. You have to ask yourself, is it possible there's another issue at play? I met with a young man one time who came in hot, okay? He said, I don't like what the Bible says about this and that and this and the other thing, and how could you be peddling a God like that? And the more time that went by, the more it became obvious that the main issue at the heart of this young man's doubts, it was not all these theological problems with the Bible, that they had actually become a smokescreen for the real issue. The real issue was the fact that he just didn't want to change his lifestyle. He'd fallen into some patterns of behavior that, that he was pretty comfortable with and that he knew when, when he would profess his faith in Christ that, that would probably cause a rearranging of those priorities. And he wasn't interested in changing his behavior. And so he kept throwing up these smoke screens of doubt and disgust with the Bible in order to resist change in his own life. See, it's so important to deconstruct your doubts. It's important to say, you know, what my main issue my main issue isn't the genocide of the Canaanites in 1 Samuel 15. It's that I don't want to stop sleeping with my girlfriend and smoking pot on the weekends. Like, get down to the source of your doubts. What is the core motivation for your doubts? Deconstruct them. Now, look at verses 15 to 17. I think this represents a key turning point in this psalm. He says this in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. 
But when I thought how to understand this, it it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And so Asaph, remember, he's a priest, he's a worship leader, and he begins to think about the consequences of his doubts. What will they do to the generations of children that I have influence over? It's going to have a negative effect on them if I continue to wallow in these doubts. And so he begins to reorient himself to God. And he would say it this way, immerse yourself in a faith community. His doubts became wearisome here. And so look at verse 17. He says, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. That word until shows that this was the turning point for Asaph. That the light breaks in as he turns to God, not as an object of speculation, but God as an object of worship. It was all downhill until he entered the sanctuary. And when you hear that word sanctuary, you think of like maybe this big old historical European church like in the movies and someone walking down the street in a movie in a hoodie with their head hung low and they turn into one of these big ornamental churches that happens to be open and they go in and they sit in that big cavernous room all by themselves. That is not what this is describing. He, it says, went in to participate in worship in the community of believers. He worshiped God. He adored God. He repented. He gave thanks. He petitioned God corporately with others. This was not a lonely individual prayer. He was rejoining community. Now, I I don't want to be overly simplistic here, but, but I hear this so, so often that I think it needs to be said plainly. Often when I talk to people who are struggling with doubt, I will ask if they're still connected to other Christians. Like, are you in a group? Are you connected to a worshiping community? Are you in a book club or anything with a group of people who can walk you through this time? And the inevitable answer is no. I left my church. I stopped going to my group. I stopped hanging out with my Christian friends. I'm just trying to work this out on my own. Here's the thing. You didn't get into your doubts just by thinking, and you won't get out of them just by thinking either. Your doubts came through life events. They came through broken relationships and maybe a series of disorienting experiences. So you will also need some reorienting events and experiences and relationships to connect you back to faith. Please don't isolate. Instead, immerse yourself in a community of faith. I'll give you an example. If Kim, my wife, and I have an argument And I begin to question her love for me. Is that love even real? Did she ever even love me in the first place? I can rearrange the furniture in my mind, my thoughts toward her a thousand different times. Sometimes I do that. But that will in no way ever replace simply talking to my wife. I can't just think my way to resolving that conflict with her. We're going to have to re-engage in community together to work it out. It's not a mental exercise. It's a relational one. It's an experiential one. And so if Asaph's doubts were fueled by experiences and emotions, then finding his way back into a community of corporate worship and prayer and learning is the thing that moves him towards some solutions. Kids go to college. Some of our kids are getting ready to go to college and they get into a freshman religion class, often taught by a professor with an ax to grind against Christians. And a lot of that class is full of students also questioning the faith of their parents and the church they grew up in. And so that Christian kid goes in and they're too afraid to speak up in class. And then they meet some atheists, some, some of them who are way smarter than them and some who are way more moral than them. And they begin to doubt their faith. But all of these are experiences 
And that kid is not gonna think their way out of that. They need to put some experiences back into the mix with other Christians to help navigate those doubts. Enter the temple. Immerse yourself in a faith community where you can learn and grow and sing and wonder and question and get curious and wrestle through those doubts. Now, he comes back to talking about these wicked people that he was just admiring in verses four through 14. And he's reevaluating his view of them. These people who, who he'd just been jealous of, look at verse 18. He says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Here's the third way to bring your doubts to God. is to compare the sturdiness of your beliefs to the world's beliefs. Do a comparison. Remember at the beginning of this psalm, Asaph was describing his doubts as his foot slipping out of the foothold. And here he comes back to similar language about those in the world who are in slippery places. He says, you make them fall to ruin off the rock face. He's finally taking a look at the sturdiness of the ground that he's standing on versus the sturdiness of those who seem to be prospering but don't believe in God. You see, Everyone is planting their feet on some kind of ground. And so if you say, well, the Christian faith is too shaky of ground for me to stand on, well, you need to assess honestly then what you're trading that ground in for. Are you trading that in for even slipperier ground? Because every place you put your foot is an act of faith. The question is not, are you a person of faith? We all are. The question is, where will you put your faith? Faith is simply trust. So the issue isn't the strength of your faith. Is it strong or weak? The ultimate issue is the object of your faith. Where are you placing? Are you putting it in yourself? Are you putting it in someone else's idea? Are you putting it on God? On what ground are you standing? So back to Asaph. Remember, he's struggling through injustice and suffering, which I think is a very formidable challenge to the Christian worldview. It's a hard one for us to work through. And if you start seriously wrestling with it, it brings a lot of doubts. But but let's just put, put this point into practice for a moment. Let's put it to the test. Let's compare the sturdiness of the ground that we're standing on, the Christian worldview, and compare it to others. I would suggest that if injustice and suffering is a problem for the Christian, it's actually even more of a problem for the atheist or for the non-believer. You may be familiar with one of the philosophical arguments against Christianity. It's called the problem of evil. It says that the presence of evil in the world provides a problem for the Christian view of a good and all-powerful God. But, but there's a flip side to that. What if the problem of evil actually provides evidence for the existence of God? Listen to the words of philosopher Alvin Plantinga. He says that the most appalling kinds of human evil or wickedness are a problem for anyone who believes in God. But they are at least as big, if not a bigger problem, for people who don't believe in God. These are the only two alternatives. Can there be such a thing as evil and wickedness? If God does not exist, and we are all here only by random chance, I don't see how an atheistic view of the world has no logical place for genuine moral obligation. The strong eating the weak is completely natural, and you have no foundation for saying it's wrong or evil. Therefore, if you think that there really is such a thing as good and evil, that is not simply an illusion, then you have a very powerful reason to believe in God. So let me summarize, this is a little philosophical. His point is, if there's no God, then where did your sense of good and evil come from? 
Where did right and wrong come from? Where did justice and injustice even come from? If injustice in the world outrages you, the rich taking advantage of the poor, a person abusing an animal, and it's causing you to say, well, I can't believe God exists in a world where that stuff happens, you have to go back and ask yourself, well, wait, where did I get the idea that the universe should be a good and just place in the first place? Because if according to your worldview, the earth is a result of random collision of atoms, and we've all arrived here through survival of the fittest, well then, why should it bother you when the strong dominate the weak? That's what happens in the survival of the fittest. When the rich take advantage of the poor, that's what the whole system, that's how the whole system works. So where would you even get a sense that something is morally bad unless there is a morally good God who actually exists and has declared stuff to be bad? At best, it becomes a matter of preference. I prefer not to have, you know, not to be taken advantage of by someone more powerful than you or to, to have your house robbed unjustly, but please don't say that it's wrong. In, in your worldview, we're all just accidental molecules bumping into each other. There's no big picture morality if there's no God determining right from wrong. You see, doubting your faith in God usually doesn't offer a better solution to explain the world. It just nags at the one you already have. What doubt really means is simply that you're putting your faith in something else. And when it comes right down to it, it's not faith versus doubt, it's faith versus faith. Will I have faith in God or will I have faith in my own ideas? Will I have faith in God or will I have faith in secular humanism? Like no matter where you stand, it's an act of faith. Sheldon Van Aken is one of my favorite authors, wrote one of my favorite books of all time. It's the first one that Kim and I read together when we got married, it's called A Severe Mercy. And he puts it perfectly when, he was considering the Christian faith as a struggling college student and he wrote these great words. He said, I saw a gap be between the possible and the proved. It was possible that Jesus was God, but not proved. And so he wanted assurance and he said, how was I to cross that gap? I didn't wanna jump in faith. If I was gonna stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof, I wanted certainty, I wanted letters of fire across the sky. And I've got, I got none of these. So I wanted to hang about the edge of the gap, <laughs> not make a decision. But then I received my second breakthrough. The position was not as I had assumed all these months that there was only a gap before me. My God, there was also a gap behind me as well. There might not be certainty that Christ was God, but that would require a leap. So that would require a leap. But I had no certainty or proof that he was not God. So now, even to go back would require a leap of faith as well. I could not reject Jesus without a great leap of faith. And when I realized it would take an enormous faith just to reject Jesus, I knew what to do. There was only one thing I could do. Once I saw the gap behind me, I flung myself over the gap toward Jesus. It's shaky maybe at times to believe in God, but it's even more slippery not to. So compare the sturdiness of the ground. Finally, look at verse 21. Asaph says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, 
it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all your works. So, so, so if you go through all of these steps, if you deconstruct your doubts, if you immerse yourself in a faith community, if you, you don't just look at the problems of Christianity, but you look at the slippery alternatives, if you work through all of that, you're gonna start to realize maybe the reason for my doubts is that I'm just scared. I'm, I'm scared of, of meeting God. I'm scared of what he's gonna ask me to do. I'm scared that he won't accept me or love me. And in verse 23, Asaph says, I realized that you'd been holding my hand all through the doubts. Here's the fourth way to bring your doubts to God is to grasp for God's hand. I, I love that ending in verse 28 where he says, it is good to be near God. Remember, he, he started this whole psalm by saying that God is good to Israel, which he at the time thought meant that, that God is supposed to give me all the goodies. <laughs> But, but now his doubt has stripped away all of those assumptions and now he recognizes. He's like, man, I, I was acting like an animal toward you. I was acting like a brute toward you and still you treated me like a son. Even in his darkest doubt, he got a glimpse of the depths of God's grace and now he grasps for his hand and he realizes that it was God's presence in his life that brought him to this place of dependence. And he closes with this beautiful, intimate, relational language as if this experience of doubt is the best thing that could have possibly happened for his faith, which I sense that it was. Now, before we move too quickly through this happy ending, I need to ask, what does it mean to feel the goodness of God while you're also embittered and frustrated in the throes of doubt? It's a tough one. And some of you may be there today, and if you are, let me say this, grasp for his hand. May I suggest a mental exercise using your imagination? Would you imagine being with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember the scene. He's experiencing this same deep, absence of God. Human evil is about to rain down on his head in historic and unprecedented ways. And in this moment, he feels God's forsakenness. And it is this very moment where God is meeting him in all of his need. And so what if you imagine this in your doubt? Go kneel beside Jesus in the garden. Take his hand and realize, I was not here first. Jesus was kneeling on this ground before me. And so here I am again, God. The world is still screwed up. Yes, I too am screwed up. I have these doubts and I'm asking these questions and I'm facing this crisis. And as you kneel there beside Jesus in Gethsemane, you're, you're saying, God, I'm a brute, I'm an animal, I'm ignorant. And then you remember Jesus is right there, kneeling alongside you, grieving alongside you over the state of the world. Yet only he, not you, only he has the power to change anything. Some of you need to kneel beside Jesus and grab his hand today. His hand is the only one that can turn anything around for any of us. And this psalm ends with one of the most, most breathtaking biblical pictures of God's presence and personhood. It's, it's no accident here that it's at the end of this psalm that, that, that walks through Asaph's doubt. Asaph had been using God as a means to an end. At the start, what he really wanted was prosperity and success and comfort like everyone else, and he was gonna use God to get there. But when God wasn't giving him those things, he got angry. And as he came back to this faith community, and as he found that, that what he really had been looking for was God himself, not a means to an end, but God as the end in and of himself. And once he recognizes that, he no longer needs anything else. 
There are some of you today who have arrived here with your head and your heart and your experiences full of doubts and you have realized with ASAP that what you really need is to kneel beside Jesus and grab tightly onto the hand of God. And your host is gonna come now and walk you through a time of response. I love you guys.